The weather was beautiful on this March day in 1911. On the corner of Green Street and Washington Place in Manhattan, an eight-story building called the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory. It was regrettably a true sweatshop employing young immigrant women who worked in cramped spaces along a line of sewing machines from 12 to 16 hours a day, seven days a week. This March 25th Saturday afternoon was no different than any other. 600 workers at the factory humming away at their machines when a small fire began in a rag bin. The manager attempted to use a fire hose to extinguish it, but was unsuccessful. And the hose, with its rotted valves, was rusted shut. The fire grew. Panic ensued. The young workers tried to escape the building by elevator, but they didn't work. They tried to make their way out the doors of the stairwells, but they were locked by the business's owners who wanted to keep the workers in who were threatening to strike. Within 18 minutes, the fire was over. 49 workers had burned to death or had been suffocated by smoke. 36 were dead in the stairwells from being trampled and 58 people died from jumping to their deaths onto the sidewalks. With two more dying later from their injuries, the total of 145 people killed by the fire began to set the tone for labor in America. Despite a great deal of evidence, the owners and management failed to be indicted by a grand jury on manslaughter charges. But this did not stop those that were in power, those in politics, to begin to enact reform. But that paled in comparison to the power of the workers themselves who began to organize and form unions. Welcome to our third installment of Print the Legend, the stories that made up America and the stories that America made up. I'm your host, Mr. Nasosi, and today we will unpack the third in our four-part series of the Gilded Age, Labor in America. We'll conclude our series with politics in the big cities as we look at this most transformative time in American history. The Civil War marks the halfway point between the 19th century. The antebellum period before was when a vast majority of Americans' work was done on the family farm. After the war, through Reconstruction and at the dawn of the Industrial Age, most of the work revolved around the factory. Most Americans living in the Gilded Age knew nothing of the millions of dollars that Rockefeller, Carnegie, and Morgan had acquired. They simply went to work in factories and on railroad tracks for 10, 12, 15, and even 20-hour shifts, six days a week for wages barely enough to survive. Children as young as eight years old also worked alongside the adults. Men and women would work until their bodies could stand no more. Soon laborers realized that they must unite to demand change. And even though they lacked money, many of them lacked education or even political power, they knew the math. And it was very simple. There were more workers than there were owners. 
unions did not emerge overnight. Despite their legal rights to exist, bosses often took extreme measures, including intimidation and violence, to prevent a union from taking hold. Many Americans believed that a violent revolution would take place in America. Some of those revolts were so powerful they thought that the country was becoming an anarchy. But through these tumultuous times, the industrial titans like Rockefeller, who arranged for mighty castles to be built as fortresses to stand up against the upheaval of the masses, found that they could not in the end fight the power of the American worker. And even though the workers often could not agree on the common goals, some flirted with ideas as far left as Marxism and socialism, while others went so far to the right as to create totalitarianism, many realized that organized labor brought a tremendous positive working environment to America. And today, many workers enjoy higher wages, better hours, and safer working conditions because of the efforts done by those during the Gilded Age. It simply started with a 10% pay cut. When leaders of the Baltimore and Ohio railroad companies ordered this second reduction in pay in less than eight months, workers decided they had enough. In 1877, the great railway strike was underway and the showdown was on. Like a fire in a factory, strikes started off small, but started to grow very quickly, bringing in other movements from around the country. Such was the case when the Great Railroad Strike of 1877 began. It was a small movement, but soon Pennsylvania and Reading Railroads joined their compatriots. Pittsburgh is the gateway to the Midwest, so the strike widened to that region, going all the way to Chicago. The police, the National Guard, the United States Army clashed with angry mobs throughout the area. And throughout the land, wealthy individuals feared that the worst had finally come. A violent revolution was sweeping the nation. Was this successful? There's no telling in how many future pay cuts were avoided because of the great upheaval that was the railway strike of 1877. In fact, when the strike ended in the first week in August, over 100 people were killed. Thousands of more were imprisoned and untold millions of dollars of damage were caused to the rail lines, cars, and roundhouses. But this was not over. This was only the beginning. The power of the American people. While most frequently employing the technique of the strike, the American people also utilized boycotts and even sabotage to get their message across to the labor owners. Most 19th century strikes, while successful, were not as nearly successful as boycotts were. Unions would make the case in town that nobody buys shoes from this particular factory. Nobody purchased glassware or silverware. In these desperate times, owners that saw a direct reduction in their profit margins quickly changed their labor practices to appease not only the laborers, but the marketplace of whom which was purchasing their products.
divide and conquer. That simple strategy gave the owners the advantage over labor until the dawn of the 20th century. Laborers did not all have the same goals, and by favoring one group over another, the bosses could create internal dissent in any union. Unions were as varied as the communities that they were in. A union in Chicago looked vastly different than a union in Boston. So unity among these unions with one simple voice was very difficult. One city would boycott, while another would strike. But bringing these diverse groups together across America's landscape proved extremely difficult until national unions began to form. One national union, the very first, the National Labor Union, had very ambitious goals. And while they were fighting for the typical higher wages and shorter hours, they took to the political arena also helping to support candidates for office. Candidates that supported the banning of prison labor, land reform laws to keep public holdings out of the hands of speculators, and a national currency reform to raise farm prices. The Knights of Labor soon inherited the mantle of organized labor. They began as a secret society in 1869, but by the turn of the century, they included women and African Americans into their ranks. Their philosophy was simple. Class was more important than race or gender. The NLU and the Knights advocated for limits on immigration, restrictions on child labor, and government ownership of railroads, telegraphs, and telephones. On May 1, 1886, local chapters of the Knights went on strike demanding an eight-hour day for all laborers. At a rally at the Haymarket Square in Chicago, someone threw a bomb into the crowd. One police officer died. Several crowd members sustained injuries. So who was responsible? No one was really sure, but the American press the government and the general public blamed labor. They condemned the bombing to no avail. Americans associated labor activity with anarchists and violent mobs. Membership began to fall and soon the Knights were merely a shadow of their former size. With the Haymarket Square riot in the rearview mirrors, Samuel Gompers, born in London but now an American citizen, met leaders of a new union called the American Federation of Labor, and the AFL was off and running. Although the bosses still had the upper hand with the government, unions were growing in size and status, even having their own political power. There were over 20,000 strikes in the last 20 years of the 19th century in America. Workers lost about half of them. But in many cases, their demands were completely or even partially met. The AFL served as the premier national organization of labor until the Great Depression when unskilled workers finally came together. Smart leadership, patience, and realistic goals made a better life for the hundreds of thousands of working Americans they served. Bang, 
grand old rag, you're a high-flying flag, and forever in peace may you wave. You're the emblem of the land I love, the home of the free and the brave. Every heart beats through under red, white, and blue, where there's never a boat or brag. Despite the success of the American Federation of Labor, American radicalism was not dead. The number of those who felt American capitalist systems were fundamentally flawed and growing fast were met with the Voices of American Socialists, who based their beliefs on the writings of Karl Marx, the German philosopher. Many asked why so many Americans working should have so little, while those who did the least amount of work grew incredibly wealthy. This existential and fundamental question at the turn of the century found that no wealth could exist without the sweat and blood of its workforce. They suggested that the government should own all of the industries and then divide the profits among those who actually created the profits. The father of American socialism, Eugene V. Debs, born in Indiana. Debs, early in the years, formed the American Railway Union and found himself leading one of the largest strikes in American history, the Great Pullman Strike, which fired about 5,000 employees. To show support, though, Debs called for members of the American Railway Union to refrain from operating any trains that used Pullman cars. And when the strike was declared illegal by a court injunction, chaos erupted. President Cleveland ordered the federal troops to quell the strikers, and Debs was arrested. Soon, order was restored, and the strike failed. But the idea of socialism did not, and the experience with the Pullman strike and the subsequent six-month jail term led Debs to believe that drastic action was necessary. Drastic action necessary in Washington. Debs chose to confine his activity from this point forward in the political arena, and by 1900, he ran for president as a socialist, garnering 87,000 votes. You're a grand old rag, you're a grand old rag, you're a high-flying flag, and forever in peace may you wave. Times are indeed changing for now a 20th century America. The age of industry, while bringing railroads, incredible wealth, and changes in labor practices, pale in comparison to the politics and the urbanization of the landscape. The age of industry brought tremendous change to America and perhaps the single greatest impact of industrialization on a growing nation was urbanization. The once Jeffersonian ideal of small farms quickly gave way to massive skyscrapers, honking horns, and bustling cities. The notion of an agrarian America was over. That concludes part three of our four-part series of The Gilded Age. In our next series, we will tackle the rise of urban America and politics within the cities. I'm your host, Mr. Nasosi, and I thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule to join me for today's edition of Print the Legend, the stories that made up America. 
and the stories that America made up. We'll see you next time.